You're listening to the Good News in the Dark World podcast. Join us as we study God's Word and discover Jesus on every page. Here's Pastor Kevin. Uh, Most of you know that for uh, several months now, we have been looking at uh, your suggestions on favorite Bible stories. And this morning, we come to uh, one of the most famous, and that is the story of David and Goliath. I'm not going to read the entire chapter since we're going to look at it as we work our way through the passage, but I am going to, uh, to set the context, read the first 11 verses, 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, verses 1 through 11. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Over the last um, several months, we have been looking at some of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. Uh, We've looked at the uh, account of creation. Uh, We've looked at Noah's Ark. We've looked at uh, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, Balaam's talking donkey, the fall of Jericho, uh, these graphic passages in the book of Judges. Uh, Today's passage obviously is no exception. Uh, In in fact, this is probably the most well-known narrative in all of the Old Testament. Even people who don't go to church know about David and Goliath. Now, one of the temptations we face when when reading our Bibles, especially Old Testament narrative like this, is to turn these stories mainly into something about us. In, In other words, there's a sense in which we we, we kind of insert ourselves into the story and make ourselves the main point of the passage. And so the, the parting of the Red Sea uh, becomes a story that tells me that if I just have enough faith, I can get through the big obstacles in my life. Uh, Jonah is, is, ta- is meant to teach me not to run from God or you may be swallowed up by something. Our story this morning is meant to teach us that if I, if I just have enough faith, and you've heard this before, I can defeat the giants in my life. But the problem with reading our Bibles this way is the Bible doesn't tell us to read our Bibles this way. 
In fact, there's an account near the end of the Gospel of Luke where you might remember the story. Jesus is walking along this road with a couple of his followers. Basically, they're, they're having a Bible study as they're on this walk. And, and Luke tells us that, that as they're walking along this road, Jesus shows them how all of the Old Testament points to him. In other words, the Bible is not primarily about me. The Bible is not primarily about you. The, the Bible is about the triune God. It's about his plan to rescue his people through the work of Jesus Christ. That is the one main dominating theme of Scripture, God's plan to redeem his people. Now, now that doesn't mean that the story of David and Goliath or the story of uh, Jonah or the story of Noah's Ark doesn't teach us anything about ourselves. But, but it does mean that as we read our Bibles, that the main thing that we want to look for, the main thing we want to see is how this is a story that reminds us of God's great work of redemption. And our story this morning is, is no exception. Now, there are three things we're going to look at this morning. First of all, there is the dominance of the Philistines. Secondly, there is the weakness of Israel. And then third, there is the power of God. The dominance of the Philistines, the weakness of Israel, and the power of God. Children, the, the setting here is that there's about to be a war. Uh, Israel and the Philistines are all set to go to battle against each other. Throughout the centuries, the Philistines had been a, a real thorn in Israel's side. In, in the book of Judges, um, several of the judges fought battles against the Philistines. Those battles continued on in, in 2 Chronicles, uh, 1 Samuel, 2 Kings. The Philistines were a very, very violent people, very barbaric people, very cruel people. Uh, the, the great desire of the Philistines was to conquer other nations. And, and to expand their kingdom. And in order to do that, they were going to kill as many people as they had to kill. And so they were very, very violent people. And so here we are, we're all set for this battle. You've got the Philistines encamped between Soko and Azekah. And, and you've got Israel encamped in the valley of Elah. Each army is on a mountain. There's a, there's a valley down between those two mountains. All of this is taking place about 15 miles west of Bethlehem. Now, as this battle is about to be fought, one man stands out. His name is Goliath, Goliath of Gath. Notice the first thing we're told about Goliath in verse 4 is that he is a champion. Now, children, you hear the word champion. And, and you think of somebody who won a contest. Uh, later on today, somebody is going to be crowned the Super Bowl champion. And there's all these sporting events where if you win them, you are the champion of that sport. Well, it's actually a little bit more uh, nuanced than that. In, in the original language, this word that is translated champion literally means a middleman or an in-between man. In that day, they, they would sometimes handle battles by what was known as representative combat. Representative combat. In other words, each side in a, in a military battle, each side would pick one man, one representative, or maybe a, a certain number of men or representatives, 
And, and these representatives would fight against each other. And whichever nation had the representative that won that battle, that nation was considered the winner. It sounds like a really weird way to do war to us today. But, but that's what they did then, basically, so that they would limit the number of deaths. So there wouldn't be as many deaths on the battlefield. And so the Philistines put Goliath forward as their in-between man, as their representative. He is going to be their soldier to fight this representative combat. And he's no, he's no ordinary soldier. He's Rambo on steroids, or Rambo on more steroids. <laughs> notice, notice what we're told about him. First of all, he's very, very tall. Children, he, he's almost 10 feet tall. That's really tall. If, if you've ever played basketball before, a basketball hoop is 10 feet off the ground. That's about how tall Goliath was. There are all these skeptics who, who will say, there's no way anybody could be this tall. There's no way that, that anyone is 10 feet tall. This just goes to prove this is a, a made-up story, and therefore the Bible is just filled with these made-up stories. But there have been confirmed cases in history of people who were very, very tall. In the, in the early 20th century, so about 100 years ago, less than 100 years ago, there was a man in Chicago, Illinois, named Robert Wadlow, who was 8 feet 11 inches tall. Unbelievably tall man. He didn't live to be very old. Uh, but he was 8 feet 11 inches tall. Goliath is about a foot taller than that. In addition to being tall, Goliath is obviously very, very strong. His coat of armor weighs 125 pounds. Imagine strapping on armor that weighs 125 pounds. The head of his spear weighs 16 pounds. Those of you who like to bowl, you know that a Standard bowling ball is 16 pounds. Imagine having a bowling ball at the end of your spear. That's how strong this guy is. That's how powerful Goliath is. This is a big, strong, ferocious warrior. And now he speaks. He taunts Israel. He says, I'm Goliath. I'm the champion of the Philistines. I'm the representative of the Philistines. I want you to pick one man of your choosing and send him out here and we're going to fight. And if he kills me, we'll be your slaves. But if I kill him, you'll be our slaves. And, and let, let's face it, if you're there at this moment, you know it doesn't look good, real good for Israel. I mean, who's going who's gonna to match up with a 10-foot tall killing machine? And now we see the weakness of Israel. Uh, King Saul and the Israelites hear this. They, they hear what Goliath is saying. They can probably look down into that valley and see that this is a one big dude. This is a big man. And, and they're terrified. They're, they're afraid. You, you've seen tall people before playing in the NBA. There was a guy years ago named Manute Bowl. I think he was like seven feet, eight inches tall. But he was as thin as a toothpick. And, and you'd look at Manute Bowl and you would think, that guy's probably not very strong. That wasn't Goliath. This is a, a massive, large, strong, powerful man. They look at him and they're terrified. And verse 16 tells us that Goliath does this same speech for 40 days. Day after day, he keeps coming out into the valley. He keeps mocking Israel. Send a man down here to fight me. Let's get on with this. 
And day after day after day, Israel becomes more and more afraid. I mean, put yourself there. Put yourself as an Israelite. You're standing on this one hill, and and every day you see this giant of a man coming out every day and challenging your people. And you know that if you lose the battle, which, humanly speaking, looks certain to happen, if you lose the battle, you're now going to be the slaves of the Philistines. You're not going to be free anymore. How would you feel? Feel pretty scared. Nobody, nobody can take this guy. Well, at this point, the, the scene shifts. If, if this was a movie, we would, we would go from a scene at the battlefield with Goliath going on and on about his taunts, and we would go 15 miles east to Bethlehem, and we would notice this guy named David. David is the youngest of eight sons. Now, he's not a little child. Unfortunately, I don't know whether it's some flannel graph or whatever, we kind of get this idea in our head that, you know, David, he's like eight or nine years old. He's not eight or nine years old. He's probably a teenager, probably a pretty strong teenager based on what he says here in a moment. But, but he's still too young to be in the army. He's not, not military age yet, but he has three older brothers who are in the army. And while they're at war, uh, David is going back and forth between Bethlehem, caring for the sheep, and, and taking supplies to the battlefield. That's what he's doing. And, and one day, his, his dad comes to him and he says, um, David, I, I, want you to, I want you to take some food to your brothers. I, I have some cheese here to, to take to some of the other soldiers as well. And, and while you're there, I, I want you to check on your brothers. I want you to see how they're doing and let me know. And so David gets up, crack of dawn, before it's light out, he gets up and, and he, he makes this 15-mile this journey from Bethlehem to the battlefield. And he goes to where these two armies have gathered. And, and when he gets there, he, he goes and he finds his brothers to see how they're doing. And, and as he gets there to check on his brothers and then report back to his dad, it's Goliath's day, it's Goliath's time to come out again and do the same spiel. Let's go. Enough waiting around. Send someone down here to fight me. And once again, Israel act, reacts the same exact way. They're terrified. You can imagine, after 40 days of this, morale in the Israelite camp is pretty low. No one's stepping forward. No one wants to fight this guy. This guy's not giving up. It's been 40 days. He keeps coming out. He keeps saying the same thing. There's no hope for Israel. But David doesn't like what he's hearing. He doesn't like what he's hearing. Who does this guy think he is? Are you going to let this, this uncircumcised Philistine get away with this? Are you going to let this, this worshiper of false gods get away with this? Are you going to let him continue to mock us and mock our God? It, it bothers David that, that Goliath, that Goliath is, is taunting God's people. It's like the reaction that we have. When, when we hear somebody, maybe in the in the political realm, or, or just maybe in the culture itself, mocking God's word, making fun of God's truth. It's like how we feel when, when we, we know someone who consistently and constantly takes the Lord's name in vain. It bothers us. David's got a, a righteous anger about this. And, and he goes, what's going to be done for the man who kills this guy? Apparently, um, Saul has an offer on the table. 
Saul's offer is that, that any man who kills Goliath will get three things. First of all, he will get a lot of money. Second of all, he will get Saul's daughter in marriage. And, and third, as the end of verse 26 says, his father's house will be free. In other words, no taxes. It's a pretty good offer, right? You, you kill Goliath, you get, I don't know, a few million dollars. You get to marry the princess. And, and you live the rest of your life tax-free. Sounds great. But at this point, it's been 40 days. No one's taken this offer. No one's accepted this offer. No one stepped forward and said, King Saul, I'll do this. The, the whole army is just cowering. They don't want to face this 10-foot-tall machine of a man. In fact, you'll notice something the text doesn't explicitly tell us. Not even King Saul himself is willing to step forward. Children, you might remember that, that one of the things we know about King Saul is that he was very tall. Maybe not as tall as Goliath. But, but early in 1 Samuel, we are told that, that uh, he stood head and shoulders above the rest of the people. He was a tall man. He was a strong man. He was the king of Israel. He was the commander-in-chief of the army. But, but not even he himself is willing to step forward and go up against Goliath. Well, David's not going to stand for this. He's not about to let this, this pagan continue to taunt God and taunt God's people. And so he goes to Saul and he says, I'll do it. I'll fight this guy. There you go. Is, is David just hopped up on a bunch of monster energy drinks? Just can't wait to get out there in the battlefield and, and do something? I think David knew his Bible. David knew the Old Testament. David knew that, that God had made a promise that he would send a deliverer to rescue his people from their sins. And he knew that God had made a promise that he would preserve his people. And so in David's mind, there, there's no way that, that God's purposes are going to be thwarted. There's no way that God's promises are going to be defeated. There's, there's no way that, that God's people are going to be wiped out. And David also knew that, that God uses means to accomplish his purposes. And so David basically says, I'm going to step forward and I'll fight this guy. I'm going to be the means through which God will preserve his people. Now this should be a, a, an encouragement to us this morning. This is an encouragement to live our lives in light of God's promises. You know, there are so many promises in God's word. I think one author estimated there were over 6,000 promises in the word of God. Now, in order to live our life in light of God's promises, we need to know them. But this is an encouragement to live our lives with, with what God has promised us. With the knowledge of what he says to us. And there's this, this very important little phrase that David uses here at the end of verse 26. If you have your Bible open, notice how David refers to God. He calls him the living God. The living God. Christian, this makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Yahweh is not dead. He is the living God. David knew that the gods of the Philistines were nothing, nothing. 
You remember what the psalmist says about the, the gods of the nations in Psalm 115? He says, they have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. They have feet, but they don't walk. And they don't even make a sound in their throat. The gods of the Philistines were nothing. David knew that. And brothers and sisters, today in the year 2024, it hasn't changed. We serve the living and true God. He's not dead. He's still working today. He's still orchestrating all things so that his purposes will be accomplished. And David knows this. David says, I'm going to live my life in light of who God is. I'm going to live my life in light of God's promises. And so he steps forward and he says, I'll do this. None of you are willing to do it. I'll do it. Now, his, his oldest brother has already discouraged David from even being there. We didn't read this part, but, but his older brother went to David and he said, David, you don't belong here. This isn't the place for you. You just, just go home and, and care for the sheep. And, and now when, when David goes to Saul and says, King, I'll do this, Saul says to David, look, David, I'll be honest with you. There's no way you can do this. You're, you're still a young man. You're, you're very inexperienced. And this guy, this, this Goliath guy, he's been a warrior for a really, really long time. You're not going to beat him. You ever have people say something like that to you? You, you don't belong here. You're, you're too young. You don't have enough experience. You're not cut out for this. We don't like it when, when people say stuff like that to us. David responds to Saul and he says, well, you're right. I, I, don't have, I don't have any military experience, but here's what I do have. I've killed lions and bears before. I'm going to treat this uncircumcised Philistine the same way that I treated those lions and bears. God delivered me from lions. He delivered me from bears. And he's going to deliver me from this pagan Philistine. Now, again, there's no doubt in my mind, David knew the great stories of redemptive history. He, he knew how God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. David knew that. David knew about the 10 plagues. He knew about the parting of the Red Sea. He knew about the walls of Jericho. He knew about people like Ehud and, and Sisera and others from the book of Judges. He knew that God had acted again and again and again in history. He knew that God had delivered his people over and over and over. And he knew that God had not changed. He knew God was the same. And he knew God was with him. How important it is that we know that. That as we parent our children, as we go to work, as we go to school, as we do all the things that we have to do, that we remember God has not changed and he is still with me. He's going to guide me. He's going to direct me. He's going to provide for me. He is still with me. So David lives his life in light of God's promises and in light of God's past work. And, and parents, this is why it's so important to teach your children these great stories of the Bible. 
This is why we ourselves need to know these great stories, so that we might know who God is, so that, that we might know what God has done. So that for our children's sakes, they might, they might grow up and, and live their lives by faith in him, saying to themselves, you know, mom and dad taught me these stories and, and I know that this is who God is and I know I can trust him and I know that he is always with me. And so David makes this, this great speech. And, and after this kind of speech, what's, what's Saul gonna say? I can't really argue with your logic. And so he says, okay, David, go ahead, go, and may the Lord be with you. These are two different men, aren't they? One is, one is living his life by faith in God's promises, and, and the other is living his life in fear. They, they both grew up, in a sense, with the same spiritual privileges. They both grew up in, in the community, the covenant community. They both, from their youth, David and Saul, had heard about God and who he was. And it's a reminder that, that we can be here this morning and we can hear all of the promises of God and yet not live our lives in light of those promises. Am I Saul or am I David? Am I living my life in fear or am I living my life trusting in the Lord? Well, the representative combat is all set. Here we are, David versus Goliath. Youth versus experience. Ten foot tall killing machine versus this young man. Makes you want to grab a bowl of popcorn, see what's going to happen next, right? Saul now puts on his own armor on David. But David says, I'm, I'm not going to use this stuff. I don't have any experience with your armor. I don't have any experience testing this stuff. I haven't worn it in battle. So he, he takes the armor off. He grabs his staff. He grabs his sling. He grabs five smooth stones from the creek. And this is what he's going to go out and face Goliath with on the battlefield. Goliath sees this, and, and you've got to assume, I don't know if Goliath had a sense of humor, but, but he's got to be somewhat laughing at this. Here's this young man, not even part of Israel's army, not even wearing any body armor. He's, all he's doing is carrying a stick and a sling and five rocks in his pocket. And Goliath goes, what am I, a dog? You, you come out here with a stick? David, I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to feed your flesh to the birds and the beasts. That's a pretty powerful speech. That's a pretty, well, let's say scary speech. I'm going to take you out and then I'm going to kill you and I'm going to feed you off to the animals. Would probably terrify the, the average Israelite soldier, but it doesn't terrify a man who trusts the promises of God. David responds. He says, um, you come at me with your... your your big sword and your big giant spear with the 16 pounds on the end of your spear. Big deal. I come at you in the name of the living God. And Goliath, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to cut off your head. And then I'm going to give your dead body and the dead bodies of your fellow Philistine soldiers to the birds and the beasts of the field. 
And when that happens, Goliath, everyone will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone will know that he is the living God. And everyone will know that God wins the victory not by swords, not by spears, but by his almighty power. And Goliath, remember this, the victory is the Lord's. Now, if you thought Goliath's speech was pretty good, this is even better. This is a man who trusts the Lord and his power. And we all know the story. The two men run to the center of the battlefield. David grabs one of the stones out of his bag. He puts it in his sling. He slings it at Goliath. Hits him. Children hits him square in the forehead. And we're told that that stone sinks down into Goliath's forehead. And David runs over. David doesn't have a sword, but Goliath does. David runs over. He grabs Goliath's sword. And he cuts off Goliath's head. There's another allusion, by the way, to God's people crushing a head that we've seen the last few weeks. The Philistine army flees. The Israelite army chases after them. They defeat. They plunder the Philistines. And, and the whole chapter ends by suggesting that King Saul is a little threatened by David. He, he goes to Abner, who is the commander of his army, and he says to Abner, Find out who that young man is. Find out what family he comes from. It's kind of a subtle hint of the jealousy that will plague Saul with regard to David the rest of his life. Now, there's no question that this is one of the greatest and most memorable stories in all of the Bible. But what's it teaching us this morning? Again, it's not, it's not designed for you to now go home and think to yourself, hmm, what is the big giant in my life? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to overcome that giant. Maybe it's a difficult boss at work. Maybe it's math class. Maybe it's a tough financial situation. Maybe it's a chronic health condition. And you say, well, you know, if I just have enough faith, I can defeat that giant in my life. Here's what I want to leave you with this morning. Two things as we close. First of all, story of David and Goliath is a reminder to us that God often delivers his people in ways we wouldn't expect. Children, from now on, every time as you grow up and every time you hear this story, every time you think about David and Goliath, think about the fact that this story is telling us that, that God will often act and work and deliver his people in ways that we don't expect. One example would be one we looked at a few weeks ago, the story of Jericho. I mean, would you ever in a million years think that one way you could defeat an enemy is by marching seven times around the wall of their city and then blowing trumpets? Of course not. Would you ever in a million years think that Gideon would defeat the Midianites by making his army smaller? Of course not. And would you ever in a million years think that this young man would walk in, he's not even in the army, and he would take out this great warrior that no one else among your people was willing to face? But that's how God often works. And the greatest example of this 
is the cross of Jesus Christ. Would you ever think in a million years that God would save his people from sin and death and hell by a man dying on a Roman torture device? And yet that's exactly what God has done. In the most humble and unexpected of ways, God has delivered you from your greatest problem, which is the problem of your sin. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 that you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Our deliverance was accomplished in in the most unexpected of ways. As a reminder that the battle is the Lord's. And that he gets all the glory. And you know what? God continues to work in unexpected ways today. He continues to use unexpected means today. You know, as you live your Christian life, you, you might think to yourself... I don't think God can really use me. I don't have a whole lot of gifts. I'm not very eloquent. Not very talented or gifted. We've got all kinds of weaknesses, all kinds of struggles. Isn't that what they said about David? Isn't that what they said to him that day? His brother said, you don't belong here. Go deal with the sheep. This This is men's business, David. Go home. Saul said to David, you don't have what it takes. Sorry, you don't have the skills to do this. And Goliath said, who are you to think you can fight me and defeat me? I like what one author writes. He says, what matters is not whether you have the best weapons, but whether you have the real God. What matters is not that you have the best gifts, what matters is that you, not that you have all the talents that you wish you had. What matters is that you have the real God. That same author goes on and he says, in fact, your inadequacy may be precisely your qualification for serving God. Because his strength shines most brightly behind the foreground of your weakness. When you feel your weakness, when you feel, who am I that God could use me? How can I raise my children he's given me? How can I do this job? How can I do whatever it is for his glory? Remember that his strength shines most brightly behind the foreground of your weakness. God accomplished your salvation in the most unexpected of ways. And Christian, he will use you even when you don't think you're qualified. In fact, your inadequacy, that may be our best qualification. Because we learn to trust God, we learn to rely on him.
That's the first thing this story teaches us. Secondly, the story of David and Goliath is, is pointing us forward, of course, to the way in which our salvation would be won. Children, do you remember what David is, or what Goliath is called at the beginning of this chapter? He's called a champion. And do you remember what the word champion means? It means an in-between man. It, it means a, a representative. 2,000 years ago from the glories of heaven came the in-between man. He came and he won the victory for us. He, he brought us peace with God. As Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. There is one in-between man, the man Christ Jesus. Christian, your, your greatest enemy has been defeated. Sin, death, hell have been defeated. Jesus as your champion as your in-between man, as your mediator has won the victory for you, and, and now you have the best news declared to you this morning, you have peace with God. Peace that can never be taken away from you. And so let me encourage all of us this morning to live in the joy of this good news, to live in light of what Jesus has done for us. That even when we are weak, he is strong. And he will use us and he will guide us and he will be with us forever and ever. Let's bow in prayer. If you have been blessed by this podcast and would like to support this ministry, you can find us at www.goodnewsinadarkworld.com. Thank you for listening.